Hi, this is Dan Abuhoff. And, and, this is, and Sadie Abuhoff. Sadie Abuhoff. We have a surprise broadcast today. Sadie is sitting in for her mother, uh, Tamsin, on December 28th. The uh, 2020. But uh, we're running out of 2020. We're heading up to the new year in just a few days. So we're kind of in between the holiday season when everyone else is taking off. The Tams and Dan podcast is doubling down by bringing people in from other parts of the country, who, by the way, were COVID tested before they came up to Pennsylvania. So there should be no concern about that. We've been having a nice holiday, you know, checking in on things like the holiday movies. I'll just say, apropos of nothing, that I have a, a new appreciation for the shop around the corner, uh, the Jimmy Stewart movie. This is my... What? This is the issue I take with that. Yeah. We love that. 365 days a year, 20, like 24 7. Oh, so it's the not fact a... that you're deciding today <laughs> that it's a great movie is not new information to anybody. Uh, all right, it's not new we information. We like that. We like uh, You've Got Mail. We like In the Good Old Summertime. We like She Loves Me. All like, right. We like okay. the entire canon. Let me just make this clear. They're all the same story, they're all based on the shop around the corner. Uh, and the shop around the corner is based on a book that was uh, written about Hungary, about Budapest in the 1920s or something. But you're absolutely right. You called me on it. You're right. But all I can say is I have a new appreciation. You're watching this movie in black and white. There's no soundtrack. There's nothing except Jimmy Stewart looking at Margaret Sullivan and so they're talking to each other. And it is captivating. And listen, Sorry. And carried I'm just saying, away. It's not a hot take to say that you're you like a Jimmy Stewart movie <laughs> that has been re- remade ten times. Not whoa, a hot take. Whoa! I'm so, okay. I've been exposed. All right. I can see this is going to be a rough time. Where's your mother? I could use your mother right now. She's doing more important things. All right. So you obviously are not going to you know rest. Let us rest on our laurels and talk about Christmas. You want to move on to what's big for 2021 and no, on your. It's mo- time for January because. Hockey is coming back. All right, go ahead. So hockey's coming back January 13th. Yeah. And I don't know if they're doing with this with the other sports, but they changed all of the divisions to make it easier for the whole system to work with all of the um, traveling yes. and all of that. So it's less travel. They realigned. Right. Oh, okay. Well, what first of all, what they did is they made Canada its own division. Okay. So that you don't have to deal with the Canada-American border. How many teams are there in Canada? Three or four? A lot. There are eight. Wow. Eight teams in Canada? Yeah. There's Because there are four divisions. Yeah. Three of them have eight teams. One of them has seven because there are 31 teams. There are eight teams. Do you know, when I was growing up... Do you want to name them all? Can you name them? I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't think you can name them. I think there's Calgary Flames, Ottawa Senators, Toronto Maple Leafs, Montreal Canadiens, a.k.a. the Habs, Les Habitants. Yeah. Um... (laughs) The Winnipeg Jets, the uh, Edmonton Oilers, and the Vancouver Canucks. That's seven. I got one more. <laughs> Did you say Toronto Maple Leafs? I said the Maple okay, Leafs, I, I think. You I got playing. the Calgary it's, Flames. It's amazing you got seven. I mean, that's unbelievable. I, I don't even know. It's uh... Anyway, you keep thinking about that. I can't it, even come up with another right. so just so we know, just Canada. to show how old I am. And uh, When I was growing up, there were six teams in the National Hockey League. Right. The original six. Two of them, only two of them, were in Canada. That's the, the, the Habitants. Habs, les Habitants and the Maple Leafs. And what's interesting is none of the players were Americans. They were all Canadians. Right. Yeah. So things have changed. 
All right, but you're excited about hockey. Yes, I mean, the sad thing, I think, is that the Canadian division is going to be the weakest. Oh, that's strange. Um, So they get a certain amount of playoff bids, which which is annoying. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Caps, where I am living, they have to compete with the Penguins and the Bruins, who are just always good, and the Flyers. So that's going to be rough. And um, I also am a big fan of the Hurricanes and the Stars, and they have to compete against each other as well as against the defending champs, the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I think the East and Central conferences are going to be the most um, so, so it's competitive. Just, things are so upside down that the best teams are in the southern parts of the United States. Well, Tampa Bay Lightning are the defending champs, and they played in the Stanley Cup playoffs against the I Dallas understand. Stars. And then you have the Carolina and Hurricanes. the Carolina Hurricanes are a contender. I just like them. But isn't that bizarre? The warm weather teams are the best teams. I mean, it's not like all of those people are from those areas. I'll just say. <laughs> the thing that's going to throw it upside down, though, is that since Tampa Bay won, yeah. they have obviously traded a few players, and their biggest scorer, Kucherov, is out for the season. Mm. So mm. who knows Kucherov. what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And well, then the West Coast has um, the Golden Knights and um, the Colorado Av- Avalanche, which are very competitive. Uh, but I think Knights. besides that, they're probably like the third the Golden Knights division. are the Las Vegas team, which are now yes. in their third season. They had a great first season, less good second season, I suspect. I think they're in their fourth season. Really? Yeah. But it was their first season where they went to the finals or something, wasn't it? They went to their finals against the Caps. The Caps won. Yeah. I think it's the third season. And then last year... No. Yeah. And then last year, the Blues won. And then this year... The uh, Lightning oh, yeah. okay. one, Whatever. and now this is their fourth season. Well, the Vegas team has continued to be a decent team, though, I suspect. Yes, we'll okay. see. I think over time, as they're trading players and things, yeah. I think it'll even out a little bit, because everyone said that since they got to do that expansion draft, they got kind of like everyone's like third best player or something, and it made kind of this super yeah, team. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way. As a matter of fact, it almost never works that way. But, but there's this thing they call the Vegas flu, What's which that? means that when teams travel to vegas to play they are not playing at their best because there are distractions because there are distractions (laughs) but there are all these things like some teams you know stay off the strip and they have specific rules when they go to vegas like you don't see that with any other sports teams because Uh, no uh, other sports uh, teams are in vegas except for now There, there used to be something like that in the nba and the city you never guess atlanta Atlanta was the place that people would get the flu, as you would break, because they would go out and party all night. They had clubs. I mean, in Atlanta. Atlanta has a scene. I don't know if it's your scene, but it has a scene. <laughs> it must have a scene different than my scene to create yes. to cause people to get the flu. Right. Uh yeah, that was the deal with Atlanta. Especially because when you're doing the Vegas trip, if you're anywhere but the Western Division, yeah. you're going to Vegas, and then you go to you know San Jose for the Sharks, and then you do. The L.A. tour with the Kings and Anaheim, and then you go down to Arizona. So yeah. you have this whole, like, we're on vacation for two weeks kind of vibe. Yeah. So it kind of starts or ends this whole arc of kind of a, a more fun road trip for a lot of the teams coming from, you know, Edmonton and Vancouver. Well, <laughs> if you're coming from Edmonton, man, you can get the flu anywhere. That's the way I see it. But uh, okay. Anyway, I can talk about hockey for a long time. Apparently. As we can see. Okay. Well, let's talk about basketball for a few minutes because I saw an interesting basketball article which kind of caught me unawares. And it's about uh, Amari Stoudemire, who was uh, uh, a star 
in the National Basketball Association. He was Rookie of the Year. He was a five-time All-Star. He was five-time All-NBA. A real star. I mean, maybe he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame. He's now 38 years old. He hasn't played in the NBA for three or four years. And I hadn't really thought much about him. And the article uh, tells us what he's been doing the last few years. And what he's been doing is spending a lot of time in Israel. In Israel. Uh, he, um, according to this article, which I'm sure is correct, uh, when he was with the Knicks in 2010, uh, he became interested in Judaism. In part because, you know, in New York, there are more Jews in New York than there are in Israel, as some people know. Uh, and in part because he has some family ties to Judaism. Uh, I'll just tell you, because it's what makes it a little bit more in Congress. He's a, a black man, uh, approximately six foot nine. Uh, you know, a very, uh, you know, formidable player. A great rebounder, great scorer. Uh, so when you say family ties... Is it like a distant cousin of yours? Is that what you're saying? No, not of mine. Not of mine. But uh, look, I, I'm just, that line is in the Times article. And I remember hearing something vague about it, but I can't get specific about it. But, you know, there are such things. And um, he became so interested. Interested really is an understatement. He he spent now, uh, well, he, he went to Israel a few years ago. He went to a bunch of different yeshivas there to study Judaism. He has gotten to the point where he... Uh, has converted to Judaism. Orthodox Judaism. Ordea, yes, he's observant. He, he observes the Sabbath. Uh, and he's a citizen of Israel. Um, and he's been playing basketball there over the last couple of years. They have a league there. Uh, most recently, he was with the uh, Tel Aviv team, the Maccabee. And uh, the tournament that just ended a fairly short time ago uh, they won the tournament. His team, he was the MVP. He can still play. Uh, he's obviously not playing the same level of competition as he was in the NBA. Uh, and the story is that he's now coming back to the U.S. and he's going to be an assistant coach with the Brooklyn Nets. He hasn't officially retired. He could conceivably play in the NBA. But what a story. I mean, he's changed his life completely. And no surprise, even at the age of 38, he's a star in the Israeli Basketball League. So what was your reaction to that? Well, I feel like there are two parts to this article. There's right. the whole Judaism part, and then there's this whole part where they're bringing him on to be a coach, but he doesn't really like being called a coach, and he's on the fence about whether he wants to be a coach right. for the Nets, which I found very strange because obviously he's still playing in Israel or whatever, but he still considers himself a young guy, and he just doesn't feel like he's separated into right. this um leadership or you he's know, still been playing though he's been instructional playing. role he's been playing i think he's a little crazy though because i know 38 might be young to be an nba coach yeah. but you've got to be at that point be in a headspace where you're okay with being a coach i, I, look, I, I think, think it's it, that was the weird part for me because they're talking about how mature he is and that he's converted and he has all these like mature views about life yeah. and yet he feels that he's too immature to be a coach look i think you're right but i have to admit that the thing that i responded to most strongly was what you call the first part of the article the idea that he's converted to judaism uh so much so he's gonna have to work out issues about not being able to i guess attend games on friday nights uh in new york and uh you know he's so open spiritually it's such a huge conversion and it's a little bit in congress i can tell you when i played in the temple basketball teams when i was growing up the other team showed up with somebody like Amari Stoudemire, uh, we wouldn't have been in the game. 
You know, he would have been a standout, a stickout. And, uh, well, that and they, raises the question, like, maybe it's fun for him to, you know, dunk on everybody, but, you know, what kind of value <laughs> is that bringing to him well, that he's just, you know, playing with these... Yeah, basketball, but even beyond basketball, he obviously is sincere about it. And he saw something in Judaism that changed him spiritually in a fundamental way. And and he talks about it in the article. Oh, it's been a fantastic experience for him spending that time in Israel. So... I mean, they do say that they're bringing him in under the title of player development. Yeah. And that they're he gets to do... This is they do this a lot in corporate America where like you get to be an intern and you rotate to each yes, group and, they and you learn about that. about that group. Yeah. So I don't think he's doing that officially, but he's going to have the license to work with all the different areas in the front office and see what he likes to do. Well, you know what? I, that... My guess is that he'll stick in the area of what I consider to be player development, which is where you're just kind of helping players along with the process and not necessarily on the floor coaching with them, I think, where you're just kind of, you know, if they need like a mentor or a sounding board or something like that, it's more of that type of a role rather than a coaching. I think what's going on there is they're selling him on it because they had to sell him on it, on the idea that this could prepare you for a job in management. You could be a general manager, you could be a president of a team because he's considered fairly intellectual and he he obviously is a very thoughtful person. So anyway, that was a stunning story. Here's another stunning story. Um, as if we didn't have enough to worry about, it turns out that the uh, that that Russia is cornering the market on helium. So you might say, uh, who cares? Uh, and maybe you don't. Maybe the U.S. government does, but the Times is awfully uh, concerned about it, and maybe they're right. Does this mean that the Goodyear blimp is at risk? Yes, yes, yes. They started talking about Russian party balloons. Uh, which obviously you can find, well, you can find there as you find them in stationary stores here. Uh, but they say, you know, that's not really the primary use of helium. Helium has a critical role in industries like medical technology, space exploration, and national security. Uh, it, without getting too scientific about it, apparently if you freeze helium, it's the coldest substance you can possibly have. And as a result of that, it's extremely useful and if, in fact, is it the same thing as dry ice, or is it colder than dry ice? Uh, I think colder. And uh, therefore, it is important for MRIs, where you have these extremely powerful uh, electronic magnets, which generate a lot of heat, uh, for pressurization of tanks, for rocket fuel, uh, for printing computer chips, for magnetic levitation of trains, if we ever see that, you know, uh, as it is in some European countries, um, it's a critical substance. And it turns out it's a limited substance. It's not like you can just create uh, helium out of thin air. Well, you kind of can, but um, it is thin air. But it, it's created out of uh, natural gas. And natural gas is a limited substance. And you can extract helium from natural gas. So you can, quote, corner the market. And the U.S., for whatever reason, has lost interest in helium because the U.S., created these vast caverns, and this always strikes me as strange, but the U.S. has these fields in Amarillo, Texas, in which it keeps in porous rock 2.8 billion cubic feet of helium, which is owned, quote, by the American people. And let's think about that. That's 2.8, you know, they said it's enough for an amount of blimps or about 3 billion balloons if Congress decided to throw a big party. Uh, is a football game really a football game if you don't have a Goodyear blimp? <laughs> yes, That's but I the know, question. The, we, the people, own 
billions of cubic feet of helium. I kind of wonder if it'd be helpful for uh, COVID vaccine transportation. Uh, it could be. It could be. Uh, it could be. But the thing is this. It was originally all gathered because someone uh, years ago in the 1920s thought we needed for Zeppelins, which is your point about the Goodyear blimps. But they weren't thinking about football games. They were thinking about the defense industry. They thought all wars would be fought off Zeppelin. That turned out to be a uh, misfire. Uh, and so in reaction to that, someone in the government woke up and said, you know, we spent enough money on helium for a while. And we've stopped making helium. Well, the Russians have jumped in now. And they're building a plant in Siberia. And before you know it, they're going to be the, manu the, the major global manufacturer of helium. And some people are worried. They actually quote somebody here from uh, the uh, American Chemical Society who recommends that people opt not to buy helium balloons so that we stop using this stuff up. Well, look, we could go on about this. I don't know if this is a real concern or not. But uh, there's a lot to worry about in the world, and it I turns out helium is one of the things. Good for Russia. you got to have a gimmick. If your thing is going to be helium, <laughs> go all in on helium. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I just still stuck in the idea of all this porous rock in Amarillo, Texas, filled with 2.8 Cuban, you know, billion cubic feet of helium. I mean, it's crazy. And yet, uh, someone's working on this, and the Russians have seen a soft spot, and they're moving it. So, uh I feel like this is in the category of you learn something new every day. You do. You do. It's, uh, we used it sort of to lighten things up. I'm also very proud of you. There was That was a landmine of dad jokes that you could have stepped into there, and you stayed pretty clear of them. Well, I, I don't use dad jokes. I don't know if you're onto that. No, technically every joke that you make is a dad joke. To you. Only to you. Because you're a dad. <laughs> Only to you. Only to you. All right. So I gave you the plum article about the New York Metropolitan Baseball team. Oh, I was worried for a second that I missed an article about plums. <laughs> no, no. The plum article. So you can tell us about that. So the Mets have a new, yeah. what is it, owner? Yeah, is that owner, what he owner. Is? You're off to a good story. Yes. yes. He, this new guy. <laughs> so once new, upon a time a this guy. year, the Mets good. didn't do very well. And they said, we need someone else to own this team. This is, and this new guy bought it. Yeah. And he has a lot of money. And his name is Steve Cohen. But yeah. Our listeners are on to this. He has yeah. billions of dollars. He does. And what's interesting is that he does not like engaging with the public traditionally. He doesn't like pictures of himself in right. the public. He doesn't. He likes to keep a low profile. He's a hedge fund billionaire. Those yet, guys aren't that social. He somehow has found that Twitter is his medium. And since he has purchased the Mets, he has taken to Twitter. Which I am skeptical about because maybe he just has a PR kid who's doing all these responses for him. There's nothing saying that there isn't. You know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If you, did you look at the actual responses? They seem I like mean, they were like dad jokes. The thing is, some of the responses are at like 10 o'clock at night, which is, begs the question, is he doing it himself? I don't know. Because I feel like if you're going to respond, like if you're a PR person... You write the responses, you get them approved, and then you respond. Yeah. So there would be a little bit of a lag. But anyway, um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of dad joke-esque humor here where yeah. people are giving him advice about the Mets, and he responds, for example, can I be the new GM? How about being a Ford? That's a good response. Hilarious. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, some of them are like, they didn't, I don't think they put the funniest ones in here, but... Um, can we get Billy Joe to play at City Field next season? And he says, what position? Oh, oh. 
it's pretty good. Yeah. I like this guy who said, hey, Steve, first time, long time. I'm wondering if we can get a sweet potato tie stand in center field. And he said, don't you think that would get in the way of the center fielder? Ooh, this is so good. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. So everyone is delighted that he's engaging with the fans. And yeah. he, he's really become a fan favorite already now that he's responding and being kind of an, you know, an accessible person. Well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because the evil empire, as it previously existed, the previous ownership, uh, where the Wilpons became increasingly unpopular over the last few years. The team was not successful. Uh, they made a lot of bad judgments in terms of hiring people more than anything. And in a couple of instances, they weighed in on decisions and weighed in on the wrong side. They were also seen as, you know, not big spenders. Uh, they had lost a lot of money in the Madoff scandal. And uh, they were in no position, perhaps, to finance a, a Major League Baseball team. And the Mets were run, as some people thought, as a small market team. They were spending as much as the Pittsburgh Pirates, but they're not in Pittsburgh. And they looked bad compared to the Yankees, who were spending like a New York baseball team. And hence, you have the open arms for Steve Cohen, the hedge fund billionaire, who's had legal troubles, you'll be interested to know, and has been fined, and uh, there were some serious charges brought against his investment firm, but he worked his way out of it. And what they're responding to here is how, as you put it, accessible he is. It, it, it's set up it's as if he's responding. You might be a PR person, I don't know, but uh, you'd like to think if someone was getting paid for these responses, they'd be better. It really feels like you know everyone can chat with Steve. Which, you know, is kind of thrilling to the Mets fans, right? Can I just say, I've never read an article that references Bobby Bonilla so many times. <laughs> Maybe I don't read enough Mets articles, but that was my takeaway. Who knew Bobby Bonilla was so relevant well, the reason it's to this relevant, whole situation? The reason it's relevant is the Mets, and stop me if you know this. The Mets, uh, he was a, a guy they had years ago. They finally uh, realized that they cut their losses. They bought out his contract. And they negotiated. And the check bounced, right? No, no. They go, but they negotiated a long payout. So instead of paying Benia what was due on his contract, they paid him uh, an annuity that would go on for 30, 40 years. And when you calculate annuity, you put in uh, a projected interest rate. And the interest rate they put in was, eight, was 8%, which seemed like the right interest rate at the time. But it's an insanely high interest rate now. So the result is, doesn't make any sense. He's still getting... 30 years later, a check of a million dollars every year on a particular day. And it really irks the Met fans, and it's called Bobby Bonilla Day. So uh, our buddy here, Steve Cohen, rather than running from that fact, which is what the uh, previous administration did, says, let's embrace it. Let's have a big celebration every every year for Bobby Bonilla like Day. give him a big check. Yeah, yeah put him on the scoreboard, have him come by, you know. So, so make a joke of the fact that the Mets spent all this money on this guy who didn't work out. The funny thing is, uh, Bobby Benilla had a famous teammate on the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Mets could have gone for you to one. They decided Benilla was the guy. The other guy, Barry Bonds. Mets were, <laughs> Mets were not interested in him. So in any event, so uh, Steve Cohen uh, with some rim shots here. And uh, the promise. And, and he knows something that's not his reputed personality. He's not supposed to be such a funny, easygoing guy. So again, makes you wonder, does he have a PR person? <laughs> yes, he does. Because PR people have the ability to write, write in a specific voice. That's right. why I think it could be that. They could have picked the like borderline dad joke voice and just rolled with that. Okay. All right. All right. You, you, you sort of bursted my balloon, if you will. 
If well, we can go knows, back to the healing who's waterfall. Who's to say? I just bursted think, you know. my balloon. Did you get that? He burst my balloon? Yeah, that's like the worst joke that could have come out of that situation. But, you know, I just think like he's rich enough. Don't you think he has a whole group of people? Oh yeah, he can afford. Stuff? He can afford, but you know, who knows? I'm sure he has a whole front office of assistants. We have a lot to learn about Adam, and uh, you know, I just hope it works out. It's so promising at the beginning. It's one of the things we're looking forward to in 2021. Uh, that in hockey. So the Times uh, today published a uh, a list of quotes of um, from people who passed away over the past year. And, you know, sometimes people say, you know, pithy, cute, interesting things. Uh, and they, uh, we have about 20 or 30 quotes. We're trying to pick out uh, ones that might be interesting. And it turns out most of them are not interesting. Uh, I found two or three. I think you found none that you were interesting in. Uh, but uh, let me give a couple of them because I think they're worth it. Uh, there's Diana Rigg. You know Diana Rigg, right? Not look at me. Diana Rigg was in the Avengers. You wouldn't know that from years ago. She's an actress, an older actress who passed away. We saw her on Broadway in My Fair Lady. Did you see that My Fair Lady with us? Yeah, the, right. the she, only one that has been on Broadway in the last fifty years. Yeah, yes, I yeah. saw that one. And she was she played the mother. Okay. Okay. Um, an older woman. You picked up on that. I was going to say I don't think there was a mother in the in My Fair Lady. Yes, I don't there think is. There is that role. His mother, Henry oh, Higgins' his mother. His mother. Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. okay? Uh, so yeah, so you saw her, and she was nominated for Tony for that, only because she's an older woman, but that's fine. So her quote is, uh, and again, she passed away, the older you get, I have to say, the funnier you find life. That's the only way to go. If you get serious about yourself as you get old, you are pathetic. How's that, huh? All right. A little something to think about. Uh, there's Helen Reddy, the quote you'd expect. You know Helen Reddy, right? No. Okay. Uh, Helen Reddy's famous song was I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. Okay. You know that song? Yes. Okay. Her quote is, I would like to thank God because she makes everything possible, as you might expect. Yes. All right? Is it so shocking to have the she in there? Is oh, that why you, got you found it. that <laughs> so amazing? Is that the first time you've ever heard God referred to as a she? Oh, I was, I was, I did a double take. I thought there was a mistake. blown. <laughs> You know, I'm glad this is new information for you. All right. I can see you didn't get the reaction. There is some Sean Connery. And I'm not going to read his quote, but it does remind me. It's too long. That Diana Rigg was in a James Bond movie. Yeah. She was a Bond girl. Yeah. A long time ago. But the quote I like best is from Little Richard, who we both know. You do know Little Richard. Right? I've heard of him. Oh, okay. Yes. Right. Tutti Frutti, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Here's his quote. I'm not conceited. I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. I like that. No? Yeah. Mm. Okay. You're just looking for a way to, you know... What? Explain to people that you're not conceited. Anyway. Well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that defensive. So the final article we have, an article that we had discussed before, and the problem we're having in terms of our different interpretation is you're reading text and I'm reading subtext, which is okay. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Let's talk about the article That's first. That's not the problem we're having. <laughs> I read the article, and you just made up a story about what you thought the author you would know that's write. Called, that's called subtext. No. <laughs> so it's an article. It's called an alternative universe. It, it is. Uh, it's called A Playlist for the Ages and Ageless Arguments. It's by Wesley Morris. It's about uh, a promotion that WXPN, which is a fairly non-commercial station in Philadelphia, was running over the last two weeks of the year. They, were, they set out to play... 
the top 2020 songs uh, in the station's history. Uh, and 2020, obviously, picked because that's the year we're in. And it turns out, if you, you know, you, we're familiar with the list of the top 10 songs, the top 100 songs, maybe even at the end of the year. When you get into 2000 songs, you're getting into a lot of songs. And uh, Wesley Morris uh, writes about the range of songs that they have there and that they were playing. Um, and he found it interesting. Now, you would, you can give us your, your interpretation of the text. Was that what? what? What is Wesley Morris saying here? You mean, it's not my interpretation, it's what he actually wrote <laughs> was what, what, what? basically that it's inter- like people, the listeners voted on the songs. Yeah. So it was just kind of in a year that we've, you know, been in quarantine and been isolated and not had all of these experiences that we get to have with music, usually of like going to venues and hearing live music and blah, blah, blah. He felt like this was a unique opportunity to see how people voted on these songs. And it wasn't always the his favorite songs or what he thought the artist's strongest song was. Right, right. But it was an interesting mix of songs at the end of the day. Right. And there were a lot of songs that were like, you know, B-side songs and things like that. But there were, you know, and he, I think he said... It was there was a clear number one. I don't think they said what the number one is, but it was kind of between like Born to Run and uh, Stairway to Heaven or something like that. Yeah. And he was saying like Born to Run is not the best Bruce Springsteen song, but it's like Get Over Yourself. Like it is the people's Bruce Springsteen song. So that was kind of his point is that like it's not going to be the most profound music you've ever heard in your yeah. life, but this music has a certain appeal and there's, you know, everyone connects to music a different way. And it's kind of nice to hear this wide variety of okay. 2000 songs. Okay. Now let me give you the subtext. I'm sorry. Did I talk too long? <laughs> Are you bored? Did you, did I have to wake you up? No, there? no, no, no. I'm glad you gave the text. I, I'm, you performed a valuable service. Don't sell yourself short. Nice job. And here's the subtext. You know that Wesley Morris is writing here, it's nice to hear whatever people think is a good song, and it's nice to hear other people's views and get that array of music. Or just, it's kind of like having the self-awareness of like, right. okay, this is popular right. popular music. Right. And even though it's not his taste, it's interesting as other people say, that's not Wesley Morris at all. Wesley Morris is not like that Maybe he's grown as a person. <laughs> Maybe his heart grew three sizes oh, this year. Oh, that's a, that's a literary reference. Yes. That's a, that's a Grinch reference, right? Maybe it grew three sizes. And because and let me you know, tell you, he realized that through this quarantine, yeah. you know, people right. are people. Wesley Morris is interested in no one else's opinion. What I can tell you, it, it, that's based on reading a lot of Wesley Morris, uh, but I can tell you what's going on here. And it's the, the clue is embedded in the article, is that he listened to WXPN growing up in the Philadelphia area, which was clearly where he grew up. And more than that, he heard WXN is playing songs that it played. In other words, he grew up with all this music. And so my theory is, whereas Wesley Morris would normally be dismissive of stuff that uh, is presented to him now that's sort of not in his lane, he has an affinity for the music, even a broad swath of music, because it's the music he grew up with. And that people are much more open to the music they grew up with, even if it's not of the style or the taste they would normally have. All right. Are you ready for the counterpoint there? Yes, there's a counterpoint. He does make a reference through here that there is 
a specific Philadelphia flavor to the voting process that happened. So right. there are bands that show up in here that are more popular or local to the Philadelphia area. Right. So I don't think it's that he grew up in Philadelphia, like that he grew up listening to this station. I think that maybe he finds it comforting that it's a Philadelphia list and he grew up in Philadelphia right. and... You know, there's that aspect of it. I, I, I don't know that it's because he listened to that station growing I, I, up. I got the feeling he did. But uh, 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 but that's my point. So that's what's going on. He has and that's a, what I like to call a bridge too far. <laughs> but, you know, I think there is something to that point. Because I know that I relate to music I grew up with that I have to concede is not music that everybody would like. And that I might not even like in my present situation had I not been made familiar with it when I was younger and I made a connection with it. Now, you I don't know if that's true of, of you. I mean, I, do you listen to NSYNC at all? I, even now, I know you mentioned when you were a kid, you would listen to NSYNC. Yeah, I mean, I listened to NSYNC, but I think he was making the point that it was kind of like local to that area. Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily, right. but also like, I don't know. I don't consider NSYNC to be like childhood music because I listened to it when I was a teenager. Yeah. So that would be like you listening to the Beatles. Yeah. You know. Well, let me give you, uh, let me cut. Like everybody listened to the Beatles. That's not that. Okay, okay, okay. But let me give you an example. Okay. And here's what stunned me. He has a reference toward the bottom in a fairly positive way, although he writes in elliptical fashion and you often don't know what he thinks, to a Dan Fogelberg song. Okay. Which is called Same Old Lang Syne, which is apropos since it's the end of the year. And the idea that, I, and I used to listen to Dan Fogelberg and uh, I thought it was, he was excellent. And I can listen to Dan Fogelberg now and really get a heck of a lot out of it. And yet I have to concede, if I look at sort of, uh, you know, critic critics' evaluation of Dan Fogelberg now, whatever, it's usually not extremely positive. I just think I have a connection to it, right? But, but to go back... I was just stunned to see him talk about in a semi-positive way Dan Fogelberg. It's just so different. He kind of lists it as like showing the variety of the stuff uh, that is being played. He doesn't positive. really make a comment on it. He, he Believe me, he could have easily made a negative comment about it. And he couldn't. So that's my point. And Dan Fogelberg to me is the perfect example. And I thought Dan Fogelberg was great and I still enjoy it a great deal. So uh, that's the song for the new year. Dan Fogelberg's uh, Ugh, Same no. Old Lang Syne. I think it's more like No Je Ne Regrette Hier. What is that? By Edith Piaf. Oh, that's uh, anytime. It's on, a, it's on a commercial. And now I feel like I always hear it. You know the song? Yeah. How's it go? No Je Ne Regrette I could go on. No, I couldn't. <laughs> it's not like a car commercial I, I am, or something. Oh, I, I know the commercial. I, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's a fancy car. and uh, Oh, no, no. Are you sure that's not the one? Where they have the the cars riding along and they're talking about safety and they put the fishbowl on the top of the car and it doesn't go off. That could be it. I don't yeah, know. that could be it. All right. It's song number 1093. All right. Well, that's uh, thank you for that. We don't often have singing in French. That's fantastic. But I'll stick with Dan Fogelberg's same old Lang Syne. But in any event, this has been great, Sade. Nice job filling in for a mum. Uh, fantastic. Nobody calls her that, first of all. And second of all... <laughs> I apparently have to keep you in line because otherwise I can tell from this, like you're bringing your listeners quite a drift of what is actually happening in the paper. <laughs> yeah, so. thanks for setting me straight. Uh, so until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff and Sadie Abuhoff for Tamsin Dan Read the Paper. 
Just for 